to the lunchroom and you have to decide where to eat. Man, I am so glad I'm past that point in my life, aren't you? I'm sorry if you're a student and you have to still choose that. Because choosing who you eat with and, and where you sit at, that kind of chose your identity in some ways. There's a lot of things that can take place at a table. In this sermon series, we're not going to look at the Eucharist meal at the end of Luke where Jesus sits down and has a Passover feast with his disciples and tells them, this is going to be my body and my blood. We're not going to look at those. We're going to look at the meals that come before that. We're going to look at how Jesus' table fellowship habits in the Gospel of Luke, that's part of what got him killed. So when you think about a table, what takes place at a table? Well, you conversate and you also break bread. You eat. What are the three things that you need in life to survive? Think about that. What are three things that are absolutely essential that you survive? You need air, you need oxygen, you need water, and you need food. There's something in your brain that tells you when you have those three things, you can relax. I have a friend who says to never have an important meeting without food. So if you ever invite me to be a part of a meeting, make sure that you include food. Because there's hormones in your brain. When you're hungry, these hormones are released and you have low energy and you might get a little grouchy and you're thinking about when you're going to eat or when that meal is going to come. But when you have food in your stomach, that part of your brain says, you can relax now. And then the conversation can go to a different level. If you've ever seen these Snickers commercials, I mean, this is the idea behind the Snickers commercials. You have someone who is... Uh, I think they call it a diva in the Snickers commercial, someone who is being a little grouchy and not fun to be around. They hand them a Snickers, and then they start eating that Snickers, and all of a sudden they're back to being themselves because there's something that the brain signals when we have food that tells us you can relax. So Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, sits down at a table with all sorts of people and shares a meal with them. We'll start in Luke chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to scan over... Um, a, few, a few different passages in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at Jesus' table fellowship with tax collectors. Now, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, this is still the beginning of the Gospel, so Jesus is still uh, gathering and calling his official 12 apostles. And Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, is going to be one of those 12 apostles. So in verse 27 and 28, Jesus goes up to his tax booth, and he extends this invitation, follow me. And what does Levi do? He gets up. He leaves his tax booth behind, and he follows Jesus. Now, that's remarkable for a number of reasons. But if you need refreshing, Jews, I mean, tax collectors were hated by the Jews. They were viewed as traitors to the nation because they worked for the Roman government. But not only that, they would get rich and, and collect more than was necessary to make a profit off of people. So Jews hated tax collectors. So out of all the people who would become a disciple for this rabbi, the last person that you would expect would be this tax collector. But you never know until you ask. And in Jesus' viewpoint, Levi was just an ask away, just an invitation away to come be my disciple. No one would have ever expected Levi to say yes, and no one would have ever expected Jesus to extend this invitation to him, but he does it. But it doesn't end there. Because in verse 29, Levi says, Before we hit the road, come to my house. 
So he throws a, a banquet, a great banquet for him at his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with him. This is probably the first time that a rabbi has sat down at a tax collector's house with a bunch of tax collectors. This is probably the first time that a group of tax collectors in their whole life have ever sat down and had a meal with a rabbi. It just doesn't happen. It was very unlikely. You know, sometimes when I'm in public, like, you know, say I go to the airport or I'm on a plane or I'm in a barbershop or just wherever is a place where you might strike up a conversation with a stranger, I'm always hesitant to tell them what I do for a living. Because I promise you, the conversation changes when you say that. And when they say, well, what is it that you do for a living? I say, well, I'm, I'm a preacher. The demeanor changes. You know, so I can have a normal conversation with someone, and then all of a sudden they're like, ooh. And they get stiff, they either stop talking, or they go to church themselves, and they want to know why we use a cappella and all this stuff, and, and they start getting all these questions. But for the most part, people, their demeanor changes. So I think about Jesus being this rabbi, being this great teacher, and he goes into the home of a bunch of guys who just aren't used to being around rabbis. And I imagine Jesus sitting at the table with them. You know, how did this conversation go? What did they talk about? How often did they say something that probably wouldn't, we wouldn't consider church appropriate, and then they just say, oh, sorry, rabbi. Or maybe they started to tell a story. And someone else said, hey, don't tell that while the rabbi's at the table with us. You know, I imagine, what would it have been like for Jesus to sit at a table with a bunch of guys that are considered crooks and have table fellowship with them? You know, in the first century, you've heard it said before, uh, you are what you eat. In that first century context, you were who you ate with. So Jesus dining with these tax collectors, he's associating with them. He's claiming them in a sense. Look at chapter 5, verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, if you've ever wondered, you know, how can someone be inside of a house eating and then others are watching and listening? You know, in our culture, we have houses and we close the doors and most people don't know what's going on inside the house, but... In the first century, you know, they had courtyards, and it was more of an open-air type atmosphere. So they could sit outside and listen in and watch the conversation or watch who's eating together. So it wasn't that abnormal. So here are the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're complaining about who Jesus is eating with. And they say he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Have you ever noticed that it's tax collectors and sinners? That it's not just sinners? Like, that's how much they hated tax collectors. Even sinners were offended being in the same category as tax collectors. So kind of place yourself in that situation and see who Jesus is eating with. Verse 31, Jesus answered their complaint. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick who need a physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. One of the things that we see in the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospel accounts is that Jesus was always comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. You have a group of guys, tax collectors, who probably feel pretty worthless. Never would a rabbi come and eat with them, and yet he starts with table fellowship. 
and changes their lives. But then you have religious leaders who are pretty comfortable and they're standing with God and Jesus is disturbing them. He's making them think about things they've never thought about before. And Jesus used the table at a grassroots level to start a movement to change the world. And he used a table. Jesus used a table masterfully in a way that he created intersections of people that would not normally be together. He created intersections to form unlikely relationships. I mean, you had these religious leaders, you had these crooks, you had this unorthodox rabbi, and their lives are all crossing paths, and Jesus is using the table to do that. I spent several years in youth ministry. And as a youth minister, one of the things that I noticed was that we had several families that I love and respect who were laying a solid foundation for their kids, and I would say were pretty spiritually mature, but then on the other hand, we had several kids that were kind of unattended for. Maybe their parents weren't involved, or they rode the bus to church, and they just didn't have a lot of parental guidance. And what I noticed was we kind of had two groups, kids from this family and then kids from this section, and they didn't have a whole lot to do with each other because one set of kids felt like maybe they were inferior. The other set of kids were maybe afraid and didn't know how to interact. And so I didn't know what to do. So I asked the guy that I respect who has worked with youth groups and he's worked with street kids, and I said, what do you do with something like this? When you seemingly have two different groups, do you just choose one and focus on it? And he said, no. Do what Jesus did. Use the table to create intersections and put the kids who are kind of unattended into relationship with the families who are pretty mature, and then you start to form these intersections, and then life starts to happen between those two groups of people, and you use dinner. Use a table to cross paths to use these intersections, and that's what Jesus did. But he formed a reputation. Look at Luke chapter 7. As we continue to read through Luke, you start to see that Jesus earns this reputation. In Luke chapter 7, he's talking about John the Baptist. Uh, it goes on a pretty lengthy discourse about John the Baptist, and we're going to pick up at the end of that. In Luke chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus said, John the Baptist came eating no, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. He's just kind of saying in general to the crowd. And then he says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. And look what they call him. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they give Jesus this reputation, this accusation. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He eats with them. He enjoys table fellowship. So therefore, he's a glutton and a drunkard. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says that in that context, if a family had a rebellious son, that they could bring an accusation against their son, if they felt like their son was just too far gone and they couldn't deal with him any longer, they could come before the elders of a community and say, our son is a glutton and a drunkard. And then legally, the elders could decide whether or not to stone this child in order to purge their community of impurity. So when Jesus said, you're saying the Son of Man, because of who he fellowships with, is a glutton and a drunkard. They're bringing a legal accusation against him, saying he's a rebellious child. Uh, this reputation continues in chapter 
15. Look at chapter 15. Uh, if you know anything about the Gospel of Luke, I'll tell you quickly. Chapter 15 is pretty well known for its parables. Uh, Jesus tells three parables in chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son, and the parable of the lost coin. The last one is the parable of the lost son. It's probably the most widely recognized parable about this son who asks for his inheritance, and he goes off, and he blows it. He makes some p- terrible decisions, and he comes home, and his dad embraces him. You know, it kind of represents the love of God. This great parable that we have. And it is all sparked by verses 1 and 2. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. So all these horrible people, all these outcasts, all these punks, all these losers, like there's something about Jesus that they're flocking to him. They want to be around him. And I don't think it's because he's saying, I'm okay, you're okay, do whatever you want to. I think he's changing their lives, but he's taking an approach the religious leaders had never thought of. And they complain. In verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling again. They're always grumbling, and they're saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, in the mind of the religious leaders, these guys are sinners. They're outcasts. So their impurities... It's contagious. It's going to get on us if we spend time with them, especially if we choose to dine with them. But Jesus takes a different approach. In Jesus, there's this reverse contagion where Jesus' holiness is what is contagious. And they see the holiness of Jesus and the way that he treats them, and they're intrigued, so they keep coming to him. But because of that, he earns this reputation. Every time in the Gospel of Luke... Luke mentions a tax collector. It's always in a favorable way, which was also very uncommon. So we're going to meet one more tax collector in Luke chapter 19, but this isn't just any tax collector. It's the only time in the Greek this word is used that represents a chief tax collector. So I, have a, I heard a story about a friend who, who wanted to evangelize. He wanted to reach out. So he came up with this idea that he was going to go uh, to a coffee shop that was pretty popular and well-populated, a lot of traffic in and out during the day. In a way to share the gospel with people, he set up a sign and sat beside that sign, and the sign said, I'll buy you a cup of coffee if you let me tell you my story about God. Sounds like a good idea. Why not? You get a free cup of coffee, and all you got to do is sit and listen to this guy share his story about God. Guess how many people took him up on the offer? Zero. Not one person was willing to get a free cup of coffee and have to sit down and listen to him. So he went home, he prayed about it, he thought about it, and he's like, you know what, maybe I should take a different approach. So he came back the next day and he changed the sign. And this time the sign said, tell me your story about God and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And then he had 17 takers on that day. He changed his approach and instead of starting as the one doing all the talking, he said, maybe I should sit and listen first. You know, maybe God has been working on these people who I don't know, they're strangers. Maybe God's been working on their lives a lot longer than I can realize. And he started by listening, which opened up the window, the opportunity to have these conversations. He just changed his approach. And we see Jesus in the Gospel of Luke taking a different approach. He earns himself a reputation, but he does something 
that the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, any of those religious leaders had never thought of. Like, what if we actually sat down at a table with them, showed them some love, and listened to their story, and started there? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus enters Jericho. He's passing through it. This is towards the end here. He's on his way to Jerusalem. A man was there named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was not like Levi. He's not just a regular old tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. Anybody else grow up in VBS with this song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man? Okay, every time I read that, I can't help but have that song stuck in my head. So sorry if I just put it in your head if it wasn't already. Zacchaeus, this man who's wealthy, who's climbing up on a tree because he's heard of this guy. Maybe he's heard of the reputation that Jesus had. And maybe he thought, I just want to see who this guy is who's willing to eat with tax collectors. And all he wants to do is see Jesus. When Jesus comes to that place in verse 5, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now that sounds maybe a little bit aggressive, like Jesus is just saying, hey, I'm coming over, I'm coming to your house. But in the first century, the way the hospitality worked, if you had someone like Jesus, well-known teacher, traveling through town, it was the normal thing to do was to offer hospitality. Come stay at my house. You can have lodging and free food. But normally, someone like Jesus would stay at the house of a synagogue ruler or some sort of of an official religious leader. But here, Jesus changes the norm, and he goes to a chief tax collector, and he says, I'm coming to your house. So Zacchaeus is obviously excited about that. In verse 6, he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Probably like Levi, like we read in chapter 5, Zacchaeus had probably never his whole life eaten with a rabbi. So he's excited. He's humbled by this opportunity. But look at verse 7. All who saw it began to grumble. Again, more grumbling. Lots of grumbling by these guys. And they said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. So outside the house, people are grumbling and complaining But what we're about to read is inside the house, apparently salvation is taking place. Zacchaeus is so moved by Jesus and the presence of Jesus in his home at the table, says this. Lord, look, half my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will pay back four times as much. So he's making this commitment to repent. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to stop collecting more than I need. And for those that I've cheated, I'm going to go and I'm going to pay them back. And I'm going to take care of the poor. Like just being in the presence of Jesus in this table fellowship is causing Zacchaeus to make this commitment. And we see two different tax collectors, Levi, who quits his job and leaves everything. And then you have Zacchaeus, who he's going to stay in Jericho more than likely. He's just going to live a radically new life in Jericho. So we see the different responses to Jesus, but regardless, when Jesus comes to your house for dinner, your life is forever changed. So Jesus responds in verse 9, and he said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out 
and save the lost. Jesus brings salvation with him. Now, just sitting down at a table and eating with Jesus does not, it's not a guarantee of salvation, but it's a great place to start. And just like Levi, Zacchaeus was really just only an invitation away, just an ask away, and then all of a sudden his life has changed. But you would never expect someone like that to say yes to someone like Jesus. But you never know until you actually ask. So when I think about specifically our church here at Pine Tree, I think about really three main areas that I want to share with you as I get ready to conclude this sermon. Uh, one of the areas is you hear us talk a lot about uh, how we have a mission, which is to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Christ. And we have this vision and these seven commitments. And part of the seven commitments is we want to reach our community. We want to reach the lost. So that's our vision. And then we have this new season in life coming up where we're about to restart connect groups. And we look at Luke and we look at what Jesus did, how he started this whole movement just by table fellowship. And then we have that opportunity through our connect groups. In my mind, I'm picturing, hey, we have a great opportunity to use connect groups as a vehicle to create missional communities to actually reach our community through our connect groups. When I accepted the invitation to start a new ministry here at Pine Tree, I'll be honest with you, that was one of the things that was attractive to me. Because I thought, man, they have this great small groups, now connect groups ministry. And just imagine the amount of people that could be reached through this. Now you may be thinking, well, like you said, this is only your 11th Sunday, so you're still in that honeymoon phase and you're optimistic about stuff. And, and maybe you've done it for a while and you're like, hey, just wait till he experiences it for the next 10 years. I don't know where you're at, but I hope you're not at a place where you stop dreaming. Like, I hope you're at a place where you're still praying and thinking, what can God do through this? What could God do through this ministry? So here's your challenge for this lesson and for this series. For you, maybe for your group, whatever group you come a part of, who is just an invitation away? Who is just an ask away? Who's somebody in this congregation that you know of that maybe they're disconnected? Maybe it's been a while that they've attended. Maybe they're kind of out on the, the boundaries somewhere. Maybe they just need an invitation. Or you're connected with all sorts of people that I'm not connected with, that someone else isn't connected with. Maybe someone that stopped going to church a long time ago. Maybe someone that doesn't know God. Who, who knows who it is, but you know people. You're connected with people. So who do you need to invite? And maybe it just starts there. Just like Jesus says to Levi, hey, come be my disciple. And you would never expect someone like Levi or Zacchaeus to say, okay, but they do. You'll never know until you actually ask. And now this last point is going to sound like a big word, but let me explain it to you. The eschatological banquet. Eschatology is the study of the end of times. And what we have an opportunity to do when we fellowship with, with meals, whether it's here at the building or in someone's home, is we have an opportunity to reflect what that final banquet will look like someday. Look at, if, if, you have, if you want to flip over there, you can, but in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9, I'm going to read this, just one passage, just so, because it's a great passage, and also I can now say that I've read something from Revelation, so I'm not dodging it. But Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus had this big vision in mind. He started at someone's dinner table. But his big vision, I think, that all these meals that Jesus shares in the Gospel of Luke, it's foreshadowing this great banquet that will take place someday. And the heavenly banquet. A banquet where, according to Jesus, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every race is invited to be a part of this great heavenly banquet. So it's not just people that look like you or act like you or sound like you. It's all people are invited. Not everyone is going to accept that invitation. But in Jesus, he says, all people are invited. Even tax collectors and sinners are invited to to repent, to change their lives, and to come and be a part of this great banquet. And maybe for you, whoever it is that you invite and you ask to come to your house for dinner, maybe them being a part of this great heavenly banquet begins there. Or maybe you want to be a part of a great heavenly banquet someday, and Jesus says, you're invited too. You have the opportunity to make a change. Now this morning we're about to sing a few more songs. We're going to have an opportunity for you to come up front if you need Uh, prayers or or you're ready to dedicate your life to Christ, you can grab a shepherd. He'll be standing in the back around the building. But we want you to use this opportunity, if you need prayers or whatever you need, to respond. And let's do that. Let's stand and sing.